Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 29, Episode 9. Coming up on this show, we've got Lovell's Dirty Tricks Department, the radioactive kitsune of World War II, and the E.T. businessman of Blue. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. See how I made that rhyme? Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get it. That's why I changed it. Isn't it kitsune? Isn't that like a fox spirit? Yeah, fox spirit. How are they radioactive? Are they hanging out in Fukushima? This is all part of uh, Stanley Lovell's Dirty Tricks Department. This is from a brand new book by John Lyle called The Dirty Tricks Department, Stanley Lovell, the OSS and the Masterminds of World War II Secret Warfare. Oh, interesting. So what Lyle has done is gone through all of the declassified records from the OSS, which of course was the precursor to the, the CIA, CIA. Mm-hmm. and uh, he's pulled out like all the this division, this strategic research division. I think it's div- like Division Nineteen they called it, and these guys were just the mad scientists who w- would just come up with the the craziest inventions. Like we've heard about the bat bomb. I'm going to be going through that. There's cat bombs. There's like remote control canoes with oh. dummy Chinamen on the the crash into ships. There's like weird submarine things that blow up. It's just crazy, crazy weapons, like a pen that explodes and stuff like that. Yeah, these are probably the guys that were developing the weapons to assassinate Castro. Yes, and if anything, exactly. Like, did it not a single one of them work properly? Did well, they have like an exploding <laughs> hamburger? That's most of the book that I, <laughs> that I'm going to be covering. Like a lot of things worked really well, like the heart attack gun. But I'm going to be talking about the just the wild ideas that that didn't go anywhere, and ultimately how this connects to MK Ultra. Oh, okay. Yeah, because you like can actually what Manchurian Candidate kind of stuff. Yeah, you can. Tr- there's this paper trail that almost goes directly from Stan Lovell all the way through to. Gottlieb mm-hmm. with MK Ultra for the CIA yep. and the mind control projects. Uh, but I'm going to have a bit of fun with it because, of course, we've got, you know, glowing fox spirits invading Japan that are radioactive. That works for me. So there's a lot of fun stuff coming up. What have you got? Well, we're going to be going back into Victoria. We're going to head into the highlands and we're going to look at some of these very unusual disappearances that are associated with light phenomena all through this region. Uh, it then ties into other stories that I've got of uh, weird alien pickup cases. And that's not as in an alien just tries to pick you up somewhere. <laughs> it's actually there's a, a series of cases that have been reported throughout history through through people like uh, Leonard Stringfield, um, you know, they've reported that, and John Keel even's reported this kind of stuff, where people are just driving along a highway. It's almost ubiquitous that you've got some weird light flying over the top of you, and it's like it's a classic kind of case. There's a whole heap of cases out there where people have actually been picked up and dragged away. Their craft has been, or their car has been dragged away by this craft by a set of claws, by a set of claws, oh. or by some type of metal screeching. Um, but then it's got all these elements that kind of pop up, and what we were only recently talking about, Ben. On the plus show uh, with that weird werewolf encounter with those sounds, the metallic oh, sounds. Oh, yeah, metallic sounds, uh, metallic scraping sounds. And wasn't there like a whistle, whistling sound yeah. or a high-pitched noise? Uh, a lot of these sorts of sounds show up in a whole range of different cases I'm going to go into. So we'll go into that in our plus extension. You will have to bear with me because I did leave my notes in the other office. So- <laughs> yes, this is the uh, disadvantage of having two offices. Because we still record in our old one because we've got the shipping container studio. Being what? A 25-minute drive away. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But no, no, I've got some notes on my computer and most of it's memorised. So it's, We're doing it live! We're doing it live and doing it raw. So we'll see how we go. Okay, well, let's go into John Lyle's The Dirty Tricks Department. Many of these stories 
some of you will be f- familiar with them over the years, but this is the first time I've seen them collected in such a concise way. Uh, Lyle's done a fantastic job of just combing through everything and really laying out a timeline and a history. He starts with Wild Bill Donovan. So Donovan, he paints the scene of Wild Bill Don- Donovan were in World War I. And he'd been fighting on the Western Front for less than a year, but he had already taken shrapnel in his leg. He had survived a poison gas attack. He had rescued Allied soldiers stuck under debris. And the French ended up giving him a medal. Uh, By October the 15th, 1918, Donovan and his men of the US Army's 69th Infantry Regiment, they called them the Fighting Irish, they were bunkered down in shell holes, an onslaught of German bullets coming at them. And they're basically waiting for um, tanks to come, escort tanks, so they can advance. And the tanks never showed up. And this is why they called him Wild Bill Donovan, because he was like, we don't need the tanks. We're going anyway. (laughs) So they all, you know, jump out of there. And of course, uh, he gets shot immediately. Uh, machine gun fire takes out his kneecap. Oh. And he's basically lying there in, you know, in the dirt still giving orders, like still yelling orders at his men. And this was the kind of character he was that no one dared disobey him because, you know, he was so tough. Like if he would knock you out if you disobeyed his order, even if he's lying in a ditch with his leg blown off. Um, And while he's lying there giving orders to his men, a uh, artillery shell comes down and just turns them into mist. Yeah. Um, and he's basically showered in their their bodies. Um, and after that, he's lying there thinking what to do, you know, groggy from the shell shock. And then a, a gas attack comes. So there's, a, you know, toxic gas coming over. He starts inhaling it. His mind becomes groggy and he passes out. Five hours later, somehow he's still alive. There's a bit of a lull in the fighting and a group of soldiers actually come across him, put him in a blanket and carry him for more than a mile to a field hospital, you know, with bullets going by and shells exploding everywhere. And amazingly, he survives. Uh, he lost half his regiment, which obviously weighed on his conscience for the rest of his life. Uh, and despite what he'd gone through, despite the men that he had lost, when he returned home from Europe after the war, he hungered for more combat. This was the kind of guy this guy was. Like, he he lived for combat. He wanted more. In 1923, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. He eventually became the most decorated officer in the entire US military at the time. Uh, and here, Lyle goes through, you know, some of his background, where he came from. He was a star athlete from Buffalo, New York, uh, eventually graduated from Columbia in 1907, became a lawyer. Uh, He worked in the Department of Justice as an attorney, never drank, never smoked, very disciplined guy, and he ended up writing speeches for the Republican candidate, which was Herbert Hoover. And Hoover basically promised to make him uh, attorney general if he won. And Hoover won and then reneged on his promise and basically, yeah, lied to him. Uh, And when Franklin Roosevelt eventually defeated Hoover for the presidency, and this is in the middle of the Great Depression, uh, he recognised that Donovan was a hero. Uh, he'd actually gone to school with Donovan. They both went to Columbia. And he he, he let uh, Donovan be like an advisor to his administration, and he actually started to send him to Europe 
to gather information. He wanted to use him as a kind of, I guess, an eye for international affairs. And it was on one of these trips that Donovan ended up speaking with high-ranking members of the Nazi party. And after this trip, he came back and he sat down with the president, he sat down with Roosevelt, and he said, we're in a war with these guys. It's inevitable. Yeah, clearly this guy knows contact, um, combat, so he knows that it's coming. He just saw the, the way that their society was going, what, that, what they were trying to do, and he just saw it as inevitable. There's going to be another world war. Now, Roosevelt took this with a grain of salt, but also what uh, Donovan was pressing him to do was to create a centralized intelligence organization for the United States to essentially oversee the collection of intelligence abroad and an organization that would rise above all the other bureaucratic rivalries of the other organizations and just basically be there for the president to give him the most up-to-date information. And he also wanted this centralized organization to engage in espionage, to sabotage, to provide propaganda, uh, to do disinformation campaigns against America's enemies. And he said to the president, look, modern war operates on more fronts than just the battlefronts. He said each combatant seeks to dominate the whole field of communications. No defense system is effective unless it recognizes and deals with this fact. So he's very much ahead of his time. And he reasoned that the U.S., needed to expand into a fourth domain of warfare, he called it, because, of course, the thousands of years humans had fought on land and sea, and now we had aerial combat. But he said the fourth domain was underground, basically unconventional warfare. Mm. Uh, so September the 1st, 1939, uh, Roosevelt didn't you know, do it, by the way. He just took his advice but didn't do anything. Uh, Germany invades Poland in 1939, World War II begins, and again, Donovan comes back to the president. You've got to do this. You've got to create, we need this intelligence agency. We'll be flying blind without it. And now Roosevelt starts to grow more receptive because this war started, and he actually confined, confided in a letter to you know his secretary that, um, you know, we're old school friends, I trust this guy. Um, and he's been hard done by the previous president. Like, I, I want to do this for him. But still, he didn't, he didn't create anything. But then the conflict escalated. Germany invades Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, France, etc. And instead of creating this agency, Roosevelt sends Donovan on two more trips to Europe. Now, he meets King George, Queen Mary. He meets Churchill. He ends up inspecting the coasts of England to see how they would handle an invasion. And he comes back with one message to the president. He says, these guys are going to need help in a nutshell. And by the way, we need that centralized intelligence organization and we need it now. So Roosevelt finally relents and it's July the 11th, 1941. He assigns Donovan to the new position of coordinator of information, the COI. And the COI is essentially responsible for collecting any intelligence related to national security, and they have supplementary activities. Mm -hmm. So which, is this the beginning of black ops, essentially? Yeah, this basically means anything necessary. It's like a euphemism for espionage, sabotage, propaganda, disinformation, whatever's necessary. And Roosevelt starts referring to Donovan... Because remember Roosevelt, he's paralyzed at yes, this stage. He's yeah. secretly in a wheelchair. He said that Donovan was his secret legs. 
So they set up these headquarters. September 1941, they moved the COI headquarters to this uh, three-story building in the Foggy Bottom District of Washington, D.C. It was previously occupied by the National Institute of Health. So when they moved in, (laughs) when they moved in, the third floor was just full of animals. Oh, no. Because they had all these test subjects for syphilis research. So it was just like caged monkeys everywhere. And the German intelligence learnt about this and they actually joked about it. So there's these di- radio dispatches where the Germans are like, ha, huh, this the building is full of 50 professors, 20 monkeys, 10 goats, 12 guinea pigs, and a staff of Jew scribblers. Wow. <laughs> For very quickly, they filled, the bil- they filled the building, obviously. They started to recruit. Um, but the very early days, it... It's painted as a madhouse. Yeah, would So, there's this uh, recruit who wrote a letter to his superiors, and he described it as, uh, James Aswell was his name, he described it as a meat grinder turned by a maniac. And of course, Donovan, you know, this, yeah. this crazy guy with a lust for you know, combat was the, was the maniac. Um, another army intelligence officer, Edwin Sibbett, said it closely resembled a cat house on a Saturday night with uh, rivalries, jealousies, and mad schemes, and everyone trying to get the ear of the director. So was there, again, no oversight? I guess because it was such a new organisation, there would have been little oversight. At the time, the oversight was the White House. Mm. Uh, but I don't know how much, how involved they so were in running little. it. It was basically handed over to Donovan. So they started to recruit at a steady pace until Pearl Harbor happened. The Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, then they went into overdrive. Uh, eventually, as we know, the U.S. officially entered World War II, and at the beginning of 1942, the COI now had 600 people on the payroll, and they became known as Donovan's Dragoons, but they were very much unliked in military circles. No one liked these guys. Uh, they were the new people in town. Some people called them draft dodgers, because right. if you made it into the COI- You didn't have to go th- through the draft. Yeah, you weren't drafted- they called them the Bad Eyes Brigade. Um, others called it a group of East Coast faggots. <laughs> Apparently, that was the favoured name. <laughs> wow. At least uh, fun thrusters. Yeah, Donovan preferred the nickname League of Gentlemen. But he would quickly put an end to the insults. Like, this was the kind of guy that you didn't talk shit about. Because uh, there's one example at this former dinner party. The dinner party there's an Admiral Horace Schmal. And he's talking to, you know, the other... Admirality, I guess. And he called the COI and Donovan a, uh, a tinker toy outfit spying on spies. Now, Donovan overheard this and he came up to the group and he basically said, I don't know, Admiral, I think that we could get your secret files and blow up your ammunition dump on the other side of the river before midnight. I'm just going to make him Clint Eastwood for the rest of the... <laughs> my Clint Eastwood for the rest of the episode. And this guy laughs. This Admiral just laughs at him. Um, and Donovan, Probably not a good idea. Donovan's like, all right, excuse me, gentlemen. And uh, he immediately calls COI headquarters, has an urgent request. And within an hour, a group of his agents had broken into this admiral's office at the Navy building, cracked his safe, removed everything in his safe, all his secret documents, and drove them over and handed them to Donovan at this party. And next, they snuck into the Navy ammunition dump and planted fake, like, dummy dynamite everywhere. And at the end of the dinner party, Donovan basically walks up to this Admiral Schmal, 
and hands him this bag with all his stuff in it, like everything from his safe. And he said this admiral was just slack, like his jaw hit the floor. He couldn't believe it. Uh, and then he basically told him, well, your ammunition dump's also full of dynamite. So no one messed with this guy after that. It, it makes you wonder, though. I mean, they must be sophisticated because who can get dummy dynamite at 11 o'clock at short notice mm. to go and put it? Like, did they have that just on hand so they could pull these sorts of ops? I presume so. Yeah, I presume so. Uh, on June the 13th, 1942, Roosevelt signs an order establishing the next stage, which is the creation of the Office of Strategic Services. So this is the OSS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a real precursor, isn't it? Yeah, this is the precursor to the CIA. Donovan was named the director, of course, and it started to grow. The war's heating up. They're just going on this massive recruiting drive. So they start creating branches of the OSS. So there's like special operations that does, uh, organizes foreign resistance groups. Mm-hmm. There's uh, the, the foreign info service that broadcasts propaganda against the Axis powers. There's the secret intelligence branch that uh, reports, you know, troop movements, gun placements, depots, all that sort of stuff. And then there's also morale operations, research and analysis. And yeah, hundreds of new recruits are hired for each division, each um, branch. And there's this recruiting process. So if you wanted to join one of these branches, you had to go through this training school, obviously, where you're taught you know, espionage, ins and outs, lock picking, secret writing, parachute jumping, radio transmission, uh, you know, opening people's mail and then sealing it so you can't tell it's been opened, that kind of stuff. Steaming it. Yeah, all that. You've done it. All that kind of stuff. (laughs) And there was one final test though. So even if you aced all that, there was like a practical exam at the end. Do you have to sneak into someone's office and leave a calling card? Yeah, pretty much. You had to steal classified material from an American defense company. Oh, so like Raytheon, for example. Yeah, or another um, sensitive target. And if you stole the material without getting arrested, you passed training school and you would be recruited. So there's this great story of this guy, Roger Hall, who never forgot his final test. He picked out this uh, factory in Philadelphia that made circuit breakers for radar equipment. And his plan was to interview for a job get a tour of the factory, and then basically gather whatever intel he could and then vanish. Now, he developed this elaborate cover story. He he called this... Uh, well, then he developed what he called the clincher, which was um, all these recommendation letters from other employees, which he just totally made up. But the backstory was basically him being this war hero where he had saved all these people and, you know, <laughs> killed all these Germans. Well, it's what, social engineering? Yeah, yeah. And he's he, when he does the interview, he's eventually called in for an interview. We know from his notes that this story, he said, I was interviewed by a naive and extremely impressionable young lady. And, and he immediately won her over because he's basically a hero in this cover story. And then he gives her the recommendation letters. It's the icing on the cake. She loves it. She immediately arranges for him to go and meet the company's vice president, which happens to be her father. Uh, the very next morning, and that's the final interview. Now, in the meantime, she's like, would you care to have a look around? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, <laughs> we know what that means. And he's like, I like that very much. Uh, and she basically offers to give him the 
Jalux guided tour. Mm-hmm. So it's funny, like in his notes, in this declassified document, he's like, I'm going to get this job and bang this broad <laughs> and steal all this info. <laughs> this is the it's greatest. Bond stuff. Yeah, this is the greatest job ever. So on the tour, he's learning everything about the factory. He's got the full layout, where, what the workers do, where they are, how they make everything. He's basically done 90% of his mission to get accepted into the uh, OSS. And if he can land the job, though, that's like the golden ticket. So the next day, he meets the vice president for this interview. It's going to be the interview of his life. Turns out it's the easiest interview of his life. This guy, the uh, the woman's father, the vice president, he starts talking about Army-Navy football games. Now, uh, Hall's father was uh, a Navy you know, football player. So Hall had seen every single one of these games for the last 20 years. So he just starts going back and forth with this so guy. So he creates a rapport and they're having a friendly chat. And uh, immediately they're like long lost pals. Yeah, and yeah, he's, he's like got the pour, job. pouring him drinks like it's the set of Mad Men. And by the end of the interview, the guy's like, we've got to have lunch together, like right now. <laughs> so he's like, okay, he goes and have, has lunch with the guy. Turns out the lunch is in the factory cafeteria. And the vice president... Uh, when he sits down with him, or when they enter, there's several thousand workers in there belting out God Bless America. And Hall, this budding OSS agent, suddenly realized it's actually a war bond rally. And they're trying oh, to sell war bonds. Yeah, okay. And trying to rev everyone up. Um, and without warning, the vice president goes on stage and says, the gathering's honored, honored by the presence of a war hero. <laughs> and like everyone turns to look at Hall and the, the vice president starts telling this backstory about how he fought off the Germans and saved like three men and carried them on his back through gunfire and artillery, like tells this crazy war story. Isn't that stolen valor though? Isn't that illegal? Well, he's a spy. He's lying. Yeah. Of course he's lying. Who cares if it's illegal? So he, and he calls him up on stage to give a speech so Hall's like, holy crap. He, he, and he says, Robert Hawthorne, come up on the stage and say a few words. That's his cover name, Robert Hawthorne. So Hall, he nervously starts walking towards the stage and he remembers that in his war story that he made up, he got took shrapnel to the leg. So halfway, oh, to, oh. <laughs> halfway up the stairs, he's like, oh crap, I, I need to have a limp. So he starts limping up to the microphone. And he improvises this speech, much like what you're going to do with your segment today because you forgot your notes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to hobble along with work shrapnel in me. And he tells the workers to buy war bonds until it hurts. And he urges them to donate to the blood banks. He even asks them to write letters to the soldiers overseas. And he comes up with this lie on the spot. He said, I was in a tough outfit, but I've seen men walk away from mail call empty-handed with tears in their eyes. So you've got to send men the mail. All nonsense, by the way. You have to wonder with these people, though, if there has to be... Obviously, you've got to be highly intelligent. That's one factor. But I think that it must be an element of um, psychopathy or something. Like, to be able to just yeah. tell a bald-faced lie like this. You've got to be comfortable with deceiving people. Yeah. And this is what we were discussing on the last POS episode with the woman whose job was to break into companies to mm. test their security. She was a social engineer. She has to lie to people. And there was this you know, dichotomy of, well, I'm doing this legally and I'm doing it to help the company, but 
I'm also just deceiving people every day yeah. at my job. Well, I mean, I'm sure it could be learnt to some degree, but I think you really have to have a special mystic element of morality yeah. in your personality to be able to do that. Well, everyone loves his speech. He said people were crying, like there wasn't a dry eye in the house. The vice president shook his hand. The um, the vice president's daughter comes and gives him a big hug. <laughs> it's just, and the next morning, uh, like war bonds spike in sales overnight. His speech caused such a stir that a local newspaper runs this feature story story on him, (laughs) has his paper and his story, and he's obviously offered the job on Monday. Wouldn't that make him a liability in modern times, though? Like, if he was, like, plastered across the media... That's what he's stuck with (laughs) now. I know, yeah, he's just... Like, that's the personality he's got to go with. Well, he never shows up to the job, but he passed his test. He's in the OSS... Uh, And he'll actually come up later in the story. So these branches of the OSS have been created, but something was still missing. Donovan, Wild Bill Donovan needed another branch, the most underhanded of them all, something to destroy the enemy. He needed something that could equip an undercover agent with a fighting knife to slit a guard's throat, uh, an incendiary device to set a building on fire, a camouflaged explosive to blow something up, or a cyanide pill to kill himself before being captured alive. Like, they needed all of this. He needed a branch that could develop and deploy the dirty tricks that were needed to win the greatest war in history. And he needed a a mad scientist to run it. He kept on saying that he needed his Professor Moriarty, who was the nemesis of Sherlock Holmes. And now we turn to that Professor Moriarty, and this was Stanley Lovell. So Stanley Lovell, uh, it was a chemist, uh, a very intelligent guy, obviously. He, his most informative years, according to Lyle, were actually spent in Germany. He was very, uh, I guess, changed when he read Oswald Spengler's famous The Decline of the West, where essentially Spengler argues that the, there's a, a cycle to civilizations, to high cultures, and they follow this cyclical pattern and essentially Western culture, all the signs were there that it was ready for its decline. It had basically come to an end. It had reached its peak. And Lovell read this and was moved by it, but wrote a letter to Spengler and essentially challenged him on a particular point about warfare. And Spengler was so impressed by this letter from this young American, he invited him to come to Germany. And this was in, uh, I think, the early 1930s. So the Nazis were in power and uh, he travels to Nazi Germany and he, you know, spends a couple of days with Spengler and they, you know, they would talk into the night, you know, really incredible conversations. And he essentially told Lovell, this is what Spengler told him, that Roosevelt was leading the American people down the road to dictatorship and that in the midst of the Great Depression, the United States was becoming a welfare state, which would bankrupt the country, and that Americans could no longer rely on a buffer of oceans to separate them from world events. Isolationism was over. And he actually sat Lovell down and said, look, two future world wars are going to occur, each a generation apart. Two? Yeah. So you mean as in World War II and then something else well, after I think, that? I think he predict because World War One had obviously already occurred, he saw that there would be another one following uh, you know, the first war. 
No, actually, he said there would be one five years after their meeting, and he was spot on. And was that World War II? That was World War II, spot on. He actually said 1939, specific, according to Lovell, he specifically uh, predicted it. He said another would begin around 1964, which is, I guess, the Cold War. Mm. Uh, and the wars would be fought over one issue. Spengler said it, would go, it was going to be dictatorship versus democracy. And obviously Spengler was spot on. Lovell pledged to defend democracy. He was so moved by this interaction with the inside of this genius. And uh, he, he was, like I said, he was a chemist. He graduated from Cornell, spent 20 years as an industrial chemist. But he eventually came under the wing of uh, Vannevar Bush. Oh. And Bush at the time was running the National Research Committee which was basically a government organisation created for the war to coordinate scientific research. Didn't he end up, though, heading up the CIA much later yeah, on? Yeah, this is much later. Mm. So the uh, NRC, yeah, it's, it's basically overlooking all this scientific research. He becomes uh, Vannevar Bush's aide, uh, his assistant, basically. And Bush would do these things, these little mind games, where he would test his assistants. And they just saw it as, I guess, a way to keep them sharp, to keep them on their toes. But Lovell realised later that what Bush was doing, he was actually testing them for recruitment. He was trying to see or pick out the right minds for the top secret projects that they didn't know about. What sorts of things would he do? So one example would be, one thought experiment he gave them would be, okay, you, you're about to land in the dead of night in a rubber craft like a rubber raft, on a German-held coastline. Your mission is to destroy vital enemy wireless installation, and it's defended by armed guards, dogs, and searchlights. You can have with you any one weapon that you can imagine. It doesn't have to exist. You just got to imagine it. And then the task is describe this weapon. Phaser. <laughs> like a Star Trek yeah. phaser. <laughs> well, that doesn't exist yet. Star Trek doesn't but exist. But you said yet. you can have any. It doesn't have to exist. It could be anything. Think you got to think with your nineteen forties. Oh, fine. Okay. What would you do? What would a you? A pinup poster of <laughs> doll. A doll face. <laughs> I don't know any dolls from nineteen forties. Check out those pins. <laughs> um, I, actually, it's kind of hard, isn't it? I would probably say. You would want something that would have like a, a multi-tool kind of versatility, but also you'd want something, I don't know, maybe... Invisibility cloak? No, I'm going to I'm gonna go with something large, like a grenade launcher or something. You want to blow up something. You want to take out a, a wireless installation. You want to have the okay. most firepower you can Pro use. Problem with your grenade launcher, and I know this from many years of combat in video games. Right, yes. Is they're very noisy. So as soon as you fire that first grenade, everyone knows that you're there. Yeah, so there's Every, no Everyone's on alert. You're dead, basically. So he Lovell really thinks about this. So he spends a week contemplating it and, you know, takes long walks thinking about this question. And he submits his final answer to Bush. He says, look, I want a completely silent, flashless gun, a Colt automatic or a submachine gun or both. I can pick off the first century with no sound or flash to explain his collapse. So the next century will come to him instead of sounding an alarm. Then one by one, I'll pick them off and command the wireless station. Yeah, okay, that's very smart. So Bush saw that in the mind of this young chemist, he had a bit of a knack for strategy mm. and for, I guess, seeing how violence might work. The phase still would have been better, but that's fine. So Bush says to him one afternoon after work, he says, all right, uh, go to this building after work. 
and he gives him this address. He doesn't he doesn't say anything else. He just says go to this building. Lovell doesn't know what this is for. He doesn't he's never been to this building before. He's never even heard of where this is. Uh, and he he goes there. Obviously, he follows his uh, boss's ad, uh, advice and or order. Sorry, and he arrives after hours. The building's virtually empty. He's just basically standing in the hallway, just going, "What am I doing here?" And a security guard basically comes up behind him, scares him a little bit, but directs him to this room. And it's just a bare room with two chairs in it, and you know, like a map of the world on it. And that's it. There's nothing else in there. And he has to sit and wait. And again, he's like, where is this? Why am I here? What is this meeting? How long am I supposed to wait here? Is this some kind of weird test from Bush? Like, what is going on? Eventually, this uh, large man in a grey suit and grey tie finally enters the room and sits in the other chair. It's Wild Bill Donovan. He introduces himself and says, you know, you're Sherlock Holmes, of course. Professor Moriarty is the man I want for my staff here at the OSS, and I think you're it. And Lovell's like, Professor Moriarty? What, what is he talking about? And he thinks, he's like, yeah, okay, Sherlock Holmes, Professor Moriarty. Hang on a second, Professor Moriarty, he's like, he's a diabolical madman. Like, he's a diabolical killer. He's the Napoleon of crime. And so Lovell says to Donovan, he's, he says, do I look to be as evil a character as Conan, Conan Doyle made him out to be in the stories? Do I have to be that evil? It's like, I don't give a damn how you look. I need every subtle device and every underhanded trick to use against these Jerry's and Japs. You have to invent all of them, Lovell, because you're going to be my man. Now come with me. And that was the first order he ever got from Donovan. And he just basically stands up, follows his lead, accepts the job. He's now in. Lovell becomes the director of the OSS Research and Development Branch. Oh, so he's Q. He's Q, exactly. He is Q. That would be our modern version. Their founding mandate is for the invention, development, and testing of all secret and other devices, material, and equipment. Essentially responsible for equipping the undercover agents with anything they need. Like, it could be weird disguises, deadly weapons, forged documents a car that shoots missiles, like all of that stuff. And he, yeah, Lyle even says the equivalent of James Bond's Q division. So his first assignment is to travel to England with three other recruits. And they basically learn sabotage from the British special operations executive, who is the equivalent of the OSS. And they teach them, like there's records from these guys that went saying how mind-blowing it was. They basically teach you how a team of six people, properly trained, can take down an entire city in a matter of hours. Six? Yeah, can just destroy a city. What, do you take out electrical infrastructure or something? He said, we learned how to operate and destroy locomotives, power plants, the turbines in power plants, communication systems, telephone system. We learned how to make people sick by poisoning the city's power, uh, sorry, water supply. Stuff like that, like they're taught how to fight dirty. And this really is the case that properly done, a small team like this can can bring a city to to its knees. Like you just have to overwhelm the services and the systems. And it's like a cascading effect where everything stops functioning. Well, they really are so fragile. Like it's more fragile than you realize. But you know, even here in Australia, you know, we've been experiencing blackouts in some locations. And already it's like 
can't do stuff. Can't, and it's like minor, like a minor blackout, and it just disrupts everything around well, it. Well, you one simple example is you set enough fires, and the fire department can, so only has overwhelmed so many trucks. They only have so many firefighters, and there's a certain point where things just burn because yeah. there's no one to fight the fires. So there's examples like that, but so it has a cascading effect. As yeah, well. this is what they learn, and under uh, Lovell's leadership, with the help of Bush's scientists, they created this secret division to develop all these weapons that a spy or a saboteur might need, and this was Division Nineteen. So uh, this guy named Harris Chadwell, another chemistry professor, he headed up Division Nineteen. And not much has been written about the inner machinations of this Division 19. No one really knows much about it. But here's where Lyle has gone through this trove of declassified reports and letters and minutes from meetings. And this is essentially what the book is. It's all this stuff that, you know, was never released officially, but it's all been hidden in this declassified information. So they basically built a secret clubhouse, these guys. They commandeered a 400-acre country club in Maryland and, you know, beautiful golf course, which they turned into like a shooting range and they used the pond to test oh, underwater explosives. Is this the farm? Is yeah, that, I, I think this is the farm. Is this the farm? I don't know. It sounds like the No, farm. I don't think so. Because the farm's the, the training facility, isn't it? That's in Virginia, though. Oh, okay. Right. So that's not it. This is Maryland. Uh, so this is the golf course. And... Uh, yeah, stray golf balls became um, the pond for stray golf balls became the site for underwater explosions, and they used bunkers for grenade practice, et cetera, et cetera, and made a, me- a mess of it. And eventually, this place became like a furlough center for new recruits. So, if you were waiting for your next assignment, you would go here and wait, or if you'd just come back from a mission, you would go here. And when you arrive for the first time, they'd give you a booklet explaining you can go here, you can go here, uh, this is where you do rec time, this is where you do this, this is where you do that. And at the end of this booklet, which Lyle got a hold of, it's got this note at the bottom that says, okay, a certain section of the clubhouse is closed to everyone. It's being used by a group of scientists engaged in lab research. Do not try and enter. It's out of bounds. It's kind of forbidden fruit though, isn't it? So obviously, well, there's stories of um, agents who, you know, just wandered around and came across it. And one of those agents is Hall, the guy I told you the story about earlier, who had to try and get that job at the the company in Philadelphia to pass his final test. So he was um, with a colleague and uh, his name was a fellow agent named Malcolm McKenzie. And they had basically stumbled across this secret lab. And he remembers there's notes from this kind of exchange where Hall saw this group of, he called wild-eyed scientists, and he asked Mackenzie, like, who are these guys and what are they doing in here? And Mackenzie's like, no idea. And then Hall's like, do they have any idea what they're doing? Because they look c- totally confused. And Mackenzie's like, I, I doubt they do. And just as they're having this exchange the door flings open to this secret lab. And this is how he describes him. He says, a tweed-suited string bean with the face of an intelligent squirrel came out of the door. And he's like, do uh, do either of you gentlemen have a match I might borrow? And they're like, hall smoke. So he's like, yeah, here you go. Gives him a lighter. He's like, oh, thank you. He goes back in the secret lab. (laughs) And it reminds me of that episode of Mr. Bean where he blows up the high school chemistry lab. (laughs) Because there's just this, 
boom. <laughs> <laughs> just this little boom explosion inside. And then you hear this, yeah, all these nerds cheering inside. <laughs> so they said it was just, it was like a playground in there. So we don't find out what the hell they were doing. No, I mean, they never found out what it was, but that was the kind of atmosphere where they were just playing. They were just doing like silly stuff all day, trying to create these crazy weapons. And this is kind of uh, rammed home with when Lovell first started at this place, when they set up this secret lab, he went to Donovan's right-hand man and Lovell basically said, you know, look, I'm in charge of this now, but what do I do? Like, what's my first assignment? What am I creating? And this guy just pulled him aside and said, look, never asked Wild Bill Donovan what to do. You just do it and then show him what you've done. That's the number one rule with this guy. So Division 19 just started doing stuff from their imagination. They just started coming up with whatever they could think of. And the first invention they created was the time pencil. Is that a pencil that explodes? Is it a you're, time bomb? You write down the year 1985 and you go back to 1985. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. No, it's like a, it's a, the time pencil. You could plant an explosive on a target, like an ammunition dump, like some big target. And the time pencil allowed you to delay the detonation which at the time was... So it's a timer. Revolutionary. It's a, it's an egg timer. <laughs> I imagine it's disguised as a pencil. Uh, but you could set it from anywhere from 10 minutes to 14 hours. You know, you could be across town and on your way out of Germany by the time it explodes. Um, and it's like this... Isn't it weird how we take things for granted, though? How we just go, oh, well, you know, what's revolutionary about that? But it must have been for the time. Totally. Like, but the way you'd activate the time pencil you break this little glass stick that has acid in it and the acid slowly eats through this restraining wire and once the wire snaps, it releases a spring which drives a striker into a match which ignites your payload, causing the explosion. So I'm assuming this is like plastic explosives or gel ignite or something like that. This is just the ignition method. Uh Yeah, but what it's in. Okay, so what it's in is the other stuff they eventually uh, invented. Uh, So this was things like the limpet mine, which was a little box of explosives that you would attach to ships, except here's the twist, it's magnetic. So, (laughs) yeah, it's kind of of the thing where you're like, yeah, that's pretty wild. Uh, Wow. But at the time, at the time, this was new. This was, no one had done this before. No one had managed to invent this. Uh you would connect a time pencil to it and this would blow ships up. We're living in a time of asymmetrical warfare. So no. that's why. That's why. It's, no, no. Like, eh. it's funny because now the Chinese would just hack the ship and drive it into a coral reef. <laughs> yes. You don't need a time pencil at no. all. Uh, but then eventually they bring in this guy named uh, Louis Pfizer. He was brought into Division 19 and he was the guy that invented napalm. Oh. And he, I think he was a Harvard grad. And he did it in his spare time at Harvard. And to test it, he used it, uh, he like tested it on the Harvard soccer pitch. And he ended up, like they ended up getting really angry at him because he was testing. Yeah, it would have burnt it and made it almost impossible to grow anything, right? Like leaving craters in the soccer field. Um, He developed a pocket incendiary that would go with the time pencil 
And the idea was you'd have multiple saboteurs with multiple time pencils and multiple incendiaries. And you'd just, like I was explaining earlier, you'd spread them out through an enemy city and they would just overwhelm the fire department. Yeah. It would be game over. Um, so he was essential. He did all this stuff. Like before, they didn't understand how to light oil, an oil slick. So say a ship was damaged and oil was leaking, you would think you'd just be able to shoot, a match. shoot the oil and it would ex- it would light everything and the ship would explode. But it doesn't work like that. He developed a particular device. I think it was called the Slicker. They've got all these cool names. As in like an oil slick. Yeah, it's called the Slicker. And it had napalm in it and some kind of variation on the time pencil and it would light the oil and do what they were trying to do. Um, and... The funny thing with this guy is when he first started getting these little tiny napalm packets delivered to um, Division 19, he ended up setting the Boston train station on fire and burning it down. How? Obviously by accident. One of his packets just went off and everything was just a charred mess and there was only one piece left and it was a package that had his name on it. <laughs> oh, no. So he starts getting all these calls from the FBI, right? And he starts on the call, he's like, um, I'm actually working on a secret government project and if you ask me any more questions, it's going to be you in trouble for trying to steal government secrets. And the FBI bought it. <laughs> and he never got in trouble. <laughs> now, I love what Donovan did because it's just so ridiculous and obviously would never produce any results. Like anyone who's dealt with the general public would know that this was a dumb idea, but Donovan thought it was ingenious. He did a crowdsourcing effort to urge ordinary Americans to submit their ideas for new military technologies. And this went through the National Inventors Council that would kind of filter them out and send the best ones to the R&D branch. So they got hundreds of thousands of submissions. This is where the exploding hamburger came from, isn't it? (laughs) It doesn't mention the exploding hamburger. That might have come later. But yeah, I mean, most of them were just completely ridiculous and impractical. Uh, One was just flying cars. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, how does that help us win? No, you don't understand. The cars fly. Uh, Shells filled with sneezing powder was one of my favorites. Like bullets or, yeah, bullet shells with sneezing sneezing powder. You mean like capsicum spray? Just a mildly inconvenient (laughs) moment for a soldier. Yeah, I mean, what a weird non-lethal. I mean, it's just irritating. It's not even a deterrent. Another one was, uh, get this, get this, a tank, but spherical. That was literally the idea. Oh, and by the way, it's 300 feet in diameter. (laughs) So a giant metal sphere. Why would you engage with the public? (laughs) Does it just... Roll across the battlefield? Oh, yeah, just crushing anyone <laughs> that's before it. Does it until just it reaches roll? a small hill, and, and then it, that's its only Achilles heel. Who's driving it? Is there a dude in there that's just going around, like <laughs> dying from? Being it's dizzy? like a Da Vinci style. You've got that man hanging inside as it moves across <laughs> the field. At least six separate people submitted designs for a death ray. See, see. That's where everyone's mind goes. Which is pretty cool. Like, that is one of the coolest so far. Uh, Two of them even claim to have killed a total of five ducks with the device. So how do you make this death ray and those poor ducks? Uh, Well, they concluded that they were just making it up. 
Yeah. And they were probably shooting the ducks and then claiming that the death ray, <laughs> the death ray got them. Well, I mean, there's rumors out there that Tesla apparently invented some type of death ray and that, you know, he was working on that kind of technology. Yes. Finally a way to make ducks pay. Yes. Uh, one guy followed uh, Vannevar Bush around for months and then they just worked out he was a loony bin. Like he was just waiting for him out the front of every office. He's like, Bush, Bush, I've got this amazing idea for you. Ended up being like bullets made of cheese or something <laughs> stupid. <laughs> And Bush was like, okay, these guys are weirdos. And Bush tried to avoid this guy for like a month. Do you at least leave the cheese out so it hardens? Yeah, it's like really smelly cheese. Um, and eventually another one of these guys came along who was just clearly a Looney Tune. But Bush had learnt from the first guy. So he just, instead of avoiding him, he's just like, all right, let's have a meeting now. Sit down. Let's talk about your invention. And this guy starts babbling about some nonsense, like a, a tank that's square or something stupid like that. And um, this guy had driven hundreds of miles. <laughs> he was clearly keen on his idea. Bush did something ingenious, though. He let this guy explain the idea. Then he looked, he looked him in the eye and said, now, look, uh, you've got to understand the situation I'm in right now. Let's say, hypothetically, this idea was already in the hands of the military and it was being worked on intensively. It would be very, very, very secret and we would make sure the enemy wouldn't learn anything about it. So I couldn't tell you anything about what was going on because of the secrecy regulations. I'm not saying this is the case. I'm merely saying that if this was the case, I couldn't tell you about it. Then he winks at the guy. That's smart. Yeah. So the, the guy, guy thinks it's in operation. The guy like nods his head as if he's in on it too and then gets in his car and drives home because yeah. he's convinced the military is working on his idea. Now, Stanley Lovell never forgot the best and worst idea that was submitted to the National Inventors Council. Which, hang on, the best and worst idea? Well, I say it's the best because I think it's one of the funniest. This is the cat bomb. And essentially, they <laughs> summarized what this submitter said. They said, everyone knows that a cat always lands on their feet. And everyone knows that a cat hates water. So we will strap a cat to a aerial bomb, release it from a plane, and the cat, by moving around, will guide the missile to the target, which will be a ship in the ocean. So they'll drop a bunch of cats with bombs strapped to their back into water and hope that the cats swim for the boat. No, the cat is inside the missile, and there's a. Now that I'm describing it, we've have we've have mentioned this one before. There's like a little perspex window. And the cat has little goggles on, and it's got a little joystick. <laughs> I think it's got a little joystick. And the cats, the cat can see the water and cats hate water. So it's desperately trying to steer it away from the water. And it naturally just goes towards the ship. Now, this is obviously completely retarded. This is a really yes. stupid idea that will never work. But there was a senator who thought it would work. His name was Kenneth McKellar. He was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee. And because he thought this was a top-notch idea... Lovell was told by his superiors, sorry, dude, you've got to run a test trial of this for this senator. <laughs> so they had to spend all the money to get a bunch of cats, right? Train a cat to move around inside a missile. And then they sent a bomber up with a dummy bomb with a cat inside it to try and aim it over the ocean on like a dummy target. Why would you even bother? It's obvious it's not going to work. <laughs> the cat, after they dropped it from the plane... 
The cat was unconscious in the first 50 feet of the drop. Yes! That makes <laughs> sense. Smashed into the ocean. And uh, that was the end of the cat bomb. But that leads us to one which has been repeated a lot over the years. This is one I think a lot of people know, and that's the bat bomb. You know the bat bomb? Yeah, isn't this the one where they, same kind of scenario, they strap a bunch of bombs to bats, but didn't the bats go and roost in like all the military installations, like as in like the installations that were of the site that they were testing? Yeah, like they burnt down a bunch of the test sites, not the way they wanted to. uh, And well, basically this came from this guy named Little Adams who uh, had just recently been on vacation to some caves, I think. I can't remember where they were. They're like New Mexico or something. And there was like a million, millions of these Mexican free-tailed bats. And his idea was that the military would capture them all, strap little bombs to them, and then release them on Japan. And, yeah, and because there would be so many of them and they would be incendiary, it would create a firestorm. And, yeah. it would, and they, because they would get into roofs and because Japan at the time had many traditional houses, which were thatched roofs, now I never, everything would go up. I never quite understood why this ever had any traction at all, this idea, because it just sounds so stupid and impractical. But this guy, it turns out this guy had previously invented a system for planes to pick up remote mail so that they wouldn't have to land. They had some hook that he invented that dragged on the end of the plane. Oh, was this the Skyhook thing? No, maybe. So Skyhook was used for extraction of people where a plane doesn't have to land. Oh, no, this wasn't as elaborate as that. This was just like a box of mail with a net on it and the plane would come and pick it up. Okay. And the same actually, kind of principle. They actually used it in a few remote locations that, you know, didn't have a mailman. Um, but he actually demonstrated this to Eleanor Roosevelt, and you know, the, the first lady. Yeah. And she loved it. She thought it was amazing. And so when he came up with the idea of the bats, oh. he basically called in a favor from her. So she was like, make sure this bat, why she English? <laughs> She's the queen in my story. Make sure this bat idea goes straight to the top. And uh, that's what happened. They had to do this stupid bat idea because Eleanor Roosevelt thought it was a smashing idea. Um, and I'll tell you about the first test. So they, they got all the bats and they basically put them in a refrigerated truck to put them into a kind of hibernation, even though bats don't hibernate. And then while the bats are in this hibernation, they they would strap the little bombs to them one by one. This is, And the bombs were made by the... Um, the, what's the bomb thing I was explaining earlier from Harvard? Oh, the napalm. The guy. napalm guy. Yeah. The napalm guy. And um, they did this first test where they dropped like 10,000 bats with these little napalm bombs strapped to them in the middle of the Mojave Desert. And they, instead of actual napalm, they used a red phosphor so that the team that was doing the experiment would be able to see where yeah, they landed. And, yeah, okay. They'll just follow the red smoke. And so they drop all the bats from the bomber and the team sees a red patch in the desert. So they head towards it, but it's just like 10,000 dead bats, just completely squashed and dead. Um, and what Why? Happened, because they didn't fly? Well, they were, they were just unconscious the whole way down. Because they, they didn't, oh. they were just, you know, basically frozen popsicles and they just dropped them. The few ones they said that did wake up as they're on the way down, they're, because they were going so fast, their wings just oh, like it's, yeah, it's horrible, horrible. Um, so they ended up passing that off to the army, 
They actually passed it off to the army. Yeah, they, they maybe it was a joke, like an inside joke. <laughs> like, let's give this to the army. Those idiots will take it. <laughs> the reality is, I mean, that that kind of stuff, like, it just shouldn't even be allowed in the first place. Like, who cares if you're calling in a favour? It's insane. If it works, though. Yeah, I know you're living in desperate times, but I'm like, really? Like, you could just see, obviously, you're not going to get bats to go and roost in people's homes. It doesn't work. Bats don't behave in that fashion. Well, the army tried it a couple of times and they had more success, but they ended up abandoning it uh, because the Manhattan Project. No, it wasn't the army. It was the Marine Corps. Oh. The Navy ended up getting the project and they abandoned it because they had, you know, insight on the Manhattan Project, which was making progress. Well, we'll talk about creating a firestorm. Uh, yeah, well, along the way, they developed the uh, Silence Twenty Two pistol, which Wild Bill Donovan, there's a story of him demonstrating it in the Oval Office, and Roosevelt didn't even know he had it. So there's this crazy story where he shot it into a sandbag, and all Roosevelt heard was the snaps of the silencer, and was like, what is this? Um, they made the, uh, what was it called, the Stinger? which was basically a tiny, tiny pistol, like Austin Powers size ridiculousness. Like you could put it in your mouth, it's so small. There was the- Well, hang on, but if it's a stinger, it's obviously non-lethal. It just stings, is that what it is? I don't know. Like what would all- Maybe you fill it it with a a cheese round. I was going to (laughs) say- I was going to say perhaps a poison or a toxin of some kind. Like if Hitler's lactose intolerant, you just- (laughs) Shooting with a cheese round. I just get really bad Nazi fights. Yeah, yeah. he just <laughs> he just dies on the spot. He's like, <laughs> and he just dies dies from a cheese round. Uh, there's the N pen, which was a pistol disguised as a pocket pen, and they made like exploit the yeah, exploding cigarettes and cigars and everything. But the problem with the pocket pen is it was such a symmetrical design. The recruits, when they were testing it, they were never sure which was the end that fired. Oh, no. <laughs> and there's a bunch of stories of people shooting themselves in the abdomen with it, with this little pen. Uh, there was the hold-up chest blaster. This is one of my faves, just because it's so dumb. Um, this was a device. It's a forward-facing pistol that is basically strapped to your chest and hidden under your dinner jacket. Oh, it's also known as the Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and when you yeah, when you want to fire it, you stick your chest out, you stick your tits out and fire it. And so the idea is if, you, if you're caught by the Germans and they're like, hands up, you put your hands up and then you just go, <laughs> check out these sugar cookies. <laughs> yeah, you just poke your chest forward and you kill them. Bang, bang. Wouldn't it be a little bit obvious that as a, as a man you have a rather large bosom? Like, wouldn't that be difficult for a man to get well, around? Well, had, they had women spies as well. Well, as I'm saying, it obviously would be restricted to women, wouldn't it? They wouldn't make it too obvious. I'd imagine something like that would be quite large. I don't know. Um, the problem was when they tested it, like they made one guy wear it for a day um, and it accidentally fired four times. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, like, well, I mean, if it's requiring a chest thrust, like yeah. just any movement. Like could- once he, I think he went through someone's gate and it just went off. They weren't using live ammunition, but it just fired, mm. uh, you know, accidentally. They had an umbrella gun. There's this horrible story about um, them improving the hand grenade because at the time and uh, a few years into the project, an OSS officer had actually, actually a bunch of them had died in Yugoslavia because they had lobbed a bunch of grenades at a German convoy and the grenades had actually hit the convoy but bounced off into a ditch and then exploded. Oh. And all the soldiers saw the OSS agents and and killed them. 
So Lovell wanted a new grenade that would explode on impact mm-hmm. like as soon as it made contact. Um, so they ended up creating this, it's called the Beano grenade. And yeah, it would just, exp- it, it would just explode on impact, this kind of spherical design. Um, they made it spherical because they're like every American can throw a baseball. But during final testing, tragedy hit because this army civilian engineer grabbed one of the grenades without being briefed on how it worked. Oh, so he expected it had a timer. He threw it up in the air, just like a baseball lob, and then went to catch it. <gasps> oh. And he was just completely blown to bits. Yeah, you would be. Yep. Oh. Blown apart by the explosion. What a terrible way to go. One of the most famous weapons they made was the pancake mix. This had the code, da- code name Aunt Jemima, and it was an explosive compound that was basically mixed with flour. And you could make pancakes with it, you could make cookies with it, you could make cakes with it, and it would still explode. And the guy that... You mean you could have exploding pancakes? Yeah, it was 80% HMX and 20% flour, and you mix it with water, it just creates a normal-looking dough. And the guy that invented it, when he was demonstrating it to the team, he just started eating it, like, because he made cookies with it. <laughs> it's You can just eat it. Um and they had this scheme called the disappearing donkey where they'd fill the donkey's bags with what looked like flour. And then, you know, a young boy or someone would lead the donkey into a village and then maybe- Oh, a, that poor donkey. And the sniper would shoot the dough and it would explode, take out the German camp. Um, but when they, were, when, when they were testing this, Lovell eventually got the formula and he was testing it. Uh, but eventually he he kind of- I don't know if he got tired of it or they understood its its qualities and he didn't need it anymore, but he ended up having a hundred pounds of it sitting in his office. And he's like, this is, I've got to get rid of this. This is ridiculous. So he called the unnamed scientist in the declassified documents uh, that had helped develop it to come and take it. And then scientist is on the phone and he's like, oh, uh, don't worry about, you know, us picking it up, just flush it down the toilets. And so Lovell's like, all right, he gets an assistant and they get, take it all to the toilets, pour it down. There's something that just innately feels bad about this. It takes about 10 minutes and they just flush it all. It's all gone. And then when he gets back to his office, the phone's ringing and he, he picks it up and the, um, it's the boss of the scientist he spoke to earlier that told him to flush down the toilet. And this guy's the senior scientist that basically developed it. And he's like, oh, by the way, if you're going to get rid of that, um, you know, that 100 pounds of Aunt Jemima, whatever you do, don't flush it down the toilet uh, because the organic matter in the sewer will react with it and it'll basically destroy Washington, D.C. Oh, my God. And so Lovell's like, yeah, uh, good thing I didn't flush it down the toilet then. Okay, bye. (laughs) And he just starts shitting himself. And he immediately goes into full panic mode. He gets a map of the sewers of Washington, D.C. And he sees that the sewer that now contains all this explosive mixture, where it flows is directly under the White House. (laughs) And he thinks, like, the entire OSS is going to be finished. Like, everyone's going to be killed. Like, this is an absolute nightmare. Well, this is designated survivor kind of stuff, right? Amazingly, he doesn't tell anyone. He just waits. And for an excruciating 12 hours or so, he's just sitting there like watching the cut, like watching the White House. Why? Do they know that there's a certain amount of time before it becomes inert? Well, it's just a risk that it's going to happen. It's not a certainty. Um, 
And he ends up just like not sleeping all night. Like every time, you know, the garbage man comes to pick up the 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 trash. Yeah, he's up. And yeah, he's, there's, yeah. A, there's a clash and he's like, oh, that's it. And ultimately, yeah, as we know, Washington, D.C. did not get destroyed. Another thing they developed was the Heady device, which was named after this uh, famous actress at the time, which apparently, who, who apparently was um, everywhere she went, it would cause chaos. Like people would be like, oh my God, she's here. It's like the Beatles. Um, they made this device called the Heady that would simulate, you know, this sound? Yeah. And that sound would, would freak people out because it's obviously loud and annoying. Um, but it's also trauma for many yeah, people. Yeah, shell people. Yeah. So they decided to demonstrate this in a meeting with the Joint Chiefs without telling them. And this was Donovan's idea, Wild Bill Donovan. A bunch of them, I'm sure, are war-hardened yeah. people. Yeah. So they're in this, this meeting room with the Joint Chiefs and they're talking about their sabotage stuff and everything they're working on. And Lovell pulls one out of his jacket pocket and it's this tube, right, that forces, like you twist something and it forces a gas reaction and the gas is forced through this tiny tube and then it makes this whistling sound. But Lovell doesn't take into account the acoustics of the room and he also throws it into a metal trash can. Oh, so it'd be ultra amplified. He said... It would reverberate. This thing was more terrifying than the real thing. It was just like this hideous kind of horrible 150 decibel screech. It was just the worst. It was like that on steroids. It was just the most. And he, they looked over as these, you know, three-star generals or whatever they are, are just scrambling over each other to try and get to the exit. And after they explained what it was, Donovan basically pulled him aside and said, I think uh, I think we went too far with that one. Let's not do that again. And they, they never got invited to another meeting with the Joint Chiefs. This seems to have no point, though. I mean, obviously, there's a psychological warfare element that's included, but it would eventually become useless, right? Because you would have people that you know, are no longer subjected to war, so they wouldn't have that kind of reaction. No, it's not for psychological warfare. It's to create a distraction. Oh, I see. So there was one agent who desperately wanted to get out of a hotel le- a lobby, and he later he told Donovan, like, I wish I had something to just create a distraction, and that's where the idea came from. Uh, there's also things like the mole, which was a light-sensitive explosive, this is ingenious, a light-sensitive explosive device that they would attach to train wheels. And so... Under the cover of darkness. Well, no, they would do it during the day, I guess. I'm not quite sure how it worked, but the device would basically detect when the train entered a tunnel and then it would go off. And so the advantage of this is the train would then plug the tunnel so nothing else can go through. Yeah, It's much harder to clear. Very clever. And to stop German soldiers from removing it from the train inspection, they wrote this official looking, like, Third Reich sticker on it. Achtung. Yeah, it basically said in German, like, this is a car movement control device. Removal or tampering is strictly forbidden under heaviest penalties by the Third Reich Railroad Consortium Heil Hitler. And few of them were ever removed because the Germans basically didn't want to mess with the, the Reich. Um, and then there was the Black Joe, which I liked as well, which was a fake piece of coal. And they it just looked like a normal piece of coal. And the saboteur would just throw it into like a German coal depot, right? Yeah. 
But as soon as this piece of coal went into like an engine or, you know, was actually used. Yeah, you mean like in a train, like you shovel it into a train. Yeah. It would detonate. It would detonate. It would explode. Clever. And there's a story of some guy using this in Japan, like he timed it. It's, it's a crazy story where the, the train's got like thousands of Japanese troops on it. It's heading for this massive bridge that goes down a ravine in this river at the bottom. And he times it. He throws one of these in the, the train. What's it called? The, like the coal bunker. Yeah, the, the, the engine. Just as it hits the bridge, the train explodes, the bridge explodes, and all these Japanese soldiers just perish. Perish. And he just like takes out regiments in, with just with one of these bits of coal. Um, and then there's the Java Man, which was basically a fake fisherman's boat. Why would you need that? So if you've got a coastal munitions depot, for example, and you can't break through, like an air raid doesn't really work because you've got anti-air guns. Uh, the Navy can't get through because then you've got a Navy battle. But they'll often let little fishermen, local fishermen boats through. And so Lovell and his team, they des- designed like, you know, like a little Chinese fishing boat. And they had like little fake rice hat dummies sitting on it and it was just loaded with explosives and they had speakers that would emulate the sound of the shitty little engines they used. Oh, that's really actually sophisticated. And then they would fly fly a, I think it was a B-19 bomber, you know, way overhead and someone would actually control it and there'd be a, a video camera on the front of the boat and so they'd steer it remotely and that's way ahead that's of its a, time. Definitely, yeah. So that's like a drone they would use. Um, and then there's all the psychological stuff. Like, remember, we've covered a lot of this where they tried to create Tranny Hitler. Remember Tranny Hitler? Oh, I do. Yes. This came yeah, from... Yeah, they tried to, what, overlook <laughs> Because he was so emotional. They well, thought that he was... They brought in this psychologist. His name was Henry Murray. And he was meant to do an analysis of Hitler's personality. And the whole idea that you can do this remotely, you know, people familiar with Hitler's thinking... Um, Basically, this psychologist concluded that there was a large feminine component to Hitler's constitution. He was emotional, outwardly submissive, and annoyingly subservient and a full-fledged masochist when it came to sex. So after reading Murray's report, Lovell's like, all right, let's inject female sex hormones directly into Hitler's food. And so at the Eagle's Nest, there was a veggie garden, and I think they paid... The gardener there, like, ended up bribing him to inject um, hormones hormones into all the vegetables. <laughs> but nothing, yeah, because was Hitler a vegetarian? I can't remember. I don't know. But I mean, yeah, no, nothing ever happened. They they Lovell suspects the gardener just took the money and never did anything. Mm. But uh, we're not sure. I mean, maybe it worked, and he was just kept it a secret for all those years. And then there was the other one that we have also mentioned on a previous show. The League of Lonely War Women. Remember this one? This was actually quite ingenious. This was from the OSS Morale Operations Branch. They started to spread a rumor through Germany that there was a league of lonely war women willing to have sex with German soldiers. And so all if you're a German soldier, all you had to do was wear like a little heart-shaped pin on your lapel and any bar you went into, one of these women from the league would essentially proposition you and have sex with you. And you might think on the surface, oh, German soldiers would love this. But no, every German soldier's got, you know, a sister at home or maybe a wife at home or even their mother. And they start thinking, you know, they're fighting a war and they start thinking, what, my my wife is at home in the League of Lonely Women? Like, what the hell? It actually demoralized the German soldiers, this rumor. It's spread like wildfire. 
Um, and then another one was the porn psychosis idea. What's that? So there was a group, again, this is all these quacks. They just bring in these psychoanalyst quacks. They thought they could demoralize Hitler by dropping a payload of pornography on his headquarters. <laughs> and this this is so dumb. Like, they actually thought... Mine eyes! Yeah, they thought, you know, morning, Hitler comes out, he's drinking his espresso, and he just sees all these porno mags everywhere. And as soon as he glances at the naked bodies, he's like... <laughs> and they they actually believed that he would become deranged in in an uncontrollable state of derangement. The reality is he was sneaking peeks at those magazines. Well, the reality is the uh, the Air Force colonel that they presented this idea to uh, he kicked them out of his office and said, "No, you, you guys are deranged. That's the stupidest it's idea dumb. I've ever heard." It's so dumb. At first, I thought this next one was even stupider, but now that I think about it, this could work. This actually came from Lovell himself in 1943. He planned to develop a substance that smelt so foul it would, quote, produce unmistakable evidence of extreme personal uncleanliness. The idea was to distribute tubes of this fetid fragrance, fragrance, sorry, to little boys in China and have them very slowly and stealthily sneak up to the backside of an occupying Japanese officer. And just go, psh, 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 <laughs> and spray it on them, and then the officer would be like, "Oh no!" So you would bring down the Japanese army through a social faux pas? Yeah, like that would be so, such disrespect. They, they would be so embarrassed. <laughs> they would be so dishonored <laughs> by having a, a poo poo bum smell that they would probably commit suicide. <laughs> what? <laughs> And they went ahead with this I'm idea. I'm not laughing at the suicide. I'm just laughing at the absurdity. Yeah, they they uh, eventually hired this chemical engineer, Ernest Crocker, who apparently had the million-dollar nose. He could create any perfume in the world. And they started to work on all these different smells for this operation. So they worked on synthesizing vomit, urine mixed with foot odor, and rancid butter. But eventually they decided to land on the classic feces. Um and they dubbed the project, uh, it was called Operation Who Me. <laughs> oh. So dumb. Oh. But there was a Navy doctor that had recently returned from Saipan. And he understood the Japanese. He understood Japanese culture. And he said, yeah, like they, they, they would get embarrassed. Like em- embarrassing moments, uh, I guess, a weakness. But he said they use, you know, their own sewage as fertilizer. People are used to the smell. It. it it wouldn't even really bother them that much. And so they ended up doing a skunky smell instead. But um, ultimately from the declassified reports, basically nothing happened from this. Like they never rolled it out or if they did, it didn't do anything. You know what? I'm just thinking about all these, this mindless and insane stuff that was created. How much of it ultimately ended up in those comic books where like the mail order stuff? (laughs) 
yeah. of the 60s and 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, obviously toned down, but essentially they'd created these things, so what are you going to do with it? You'll put it in comic books. Well, ultimately, this was a really successful operation because it raised the spirits of everyone in the R&D branch because they started to prank each other. So, right. this was in a, these samples were in a locked, you know, fridge... A uh, heavily secured fridge, but of course, it's the OSS. Everyone's been trained on how to pick locks, yeah. so people were going in at night. Some practical joker was going in at night and then started to basically spray it on people in the office. And then Lovell took it a step further. He retaliated, so he set up an elaborate booby trap so that whoever picked the lock the next time would trigger a device that would spray them in the face. With, <laughs> okay, that's good. With the skunk smell. That, that's clever. Now, in the documents, it's redacted who got caught, like who actually was the one picking the lock at night. And Lovell never identified the person who did it because he said it was, quote, someone too highly placed to be scolded. So the rumor is that it was Donovan. Yeah. <laughs> that was that going in there. That makes sense. So, coming up after the break in our Plus Extension, I, I want to reveal to you the most insane operation of all, and that was from Ed Salinger, where he had been living in Tokyo for years, and he came back and went to the OSS with his plan, which was to develop a, to develop a flying, glowing, radioactive fox spirit that would terrify the Japanese population, and he was going to unleash thousands of them on the Japanese island. That's coming up after this on Mysterious Universe Plus. Plus, we'll reveal why this ultimately led to MK Ultra, how this connected to Sidney Gottlieb, and how the direct uh, dealings of OSS and um, Donovan and the team all inspired Gottlieb to do what he did with MK Ultra and Mind Control. That's all coming up. MysteriousUniverse.org forward slash plus. We've got the big extensions we do on these shows every single Friday. And you also get uh, an entirely exclusive show that comes out on Tuesdays as well. You're getting more than double the content when you sign up for Plus. Plus members also get a higher quality audio version of the show, better sounding show, uh, a totally ad-free version of the show as well. And if you sign up for the MU Max tier, you get access to our massive, massive back catalogue of shows that goes back a decade plus mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus check it out help support your favourite show and of course Aaron has incredible stuff totally off the top of his head because he <laughs> forgot his notes coming up as well <laughs> I have some notes so it will be fine it's as I said we're going to do it live okay so we'll, we'll be okay it's like an experiment yeah yeah it's just like a it's like a thought experiment sure yeah it's like a psychological experiment <laughs> for the audience for the paying audience it's more like that let's yeah. see how they handle it yeah That's a wrap for this free edition of the show. Thanks for listening. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week.